Hey everybody, thank you for being here today. I've got a lot of ground to cover, including protecting your wealth from seizure and protecting yourself from the soon to be created central bank digital currency. So first up, could your nest egg be seized? Could your life savings be frozen? Could your government freeze your brokerage or IRA accounts? Could your government take your Bitcoin? Or could they force you to forfeit your Bitcoin through whatever means of coercion that they have at their disposal? You know, I've been thinking a lot about this threat in the last few days because, well, as you probably know, it's happening in Canada. Um, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. And hopefully, you know, if you've listened to this show, you know I'm not like some QAnon nut job. Uh, I'm not super political, though I do like to point out stupidity in either political party when I observe it. But I've been following the Canadian trucker protests, and like most Americans, I know absolutely nothing about Canadian politics. I, speaking of which, that reminds me, back in the day, and this would be like in about 1994, I was in a touring country band, and we did a week or so at a time in Calgary during the Calgary Stampede, which was a weird, surreal experience. I remember the first time we did this, it was in, I think the Stampede's in June. We show up and our slot that we played was from like 1 p.m. to 5 p.m., okay? So we were in this big honky-tonk bar and we would show up at 1 o'clock and it would be packed with hundreds of drunk Canadians at 1 o'clock. And, um, and then there was a band that went from like 5 to 9 and then another one that went from 9 to 1. And yeah, it was just one big giant party. And if you haven't been to the Calgary Stampede, uh, I definitely would recommend it just for the spectacle that it is. We also played, you know, towns like uh, Winnipeg. We, I'm Seriously, we were the Beatles in Winnipeg. I remember this bar that we played it was like three stories inside so there's like this dance floor but then there were like terraces around a second story that had like a like a pizza place in it i mean it was gigantic anyway country music was huge this was the garth brooks era and um yeah it was kind of awesome and we also played in uh east in uh, thunder bay ontario which was not as fun it was cold as hell and that was kind of a depressing town but anyway, I digress. Fast forward to adulthood and, um, you know, I've had multiple occasions to head north, including like uh, jobs in Ontario, um, in the Toronto area and in Quebec. I've done jobs in Montreal and Quebec City. I've done some weekends in Vancouver and I rode my motorcycle over the Canadian Rockies, Banff and all that. What's my point? Well, I've spent a lot of time in Canada, more time than any other American that I personally know. And my experience there well, except for there was one time in Vancouver when someone broke into my car and uh, stole some CDs, which was a pain in the ass because I had to drive back to Portland with the window taped over. But um, overall, my experience up there has been overwhelmingly positive. And Canadians in general are more informed, at least in my experience, are more informed about American politics than we Americans are. And of course, we Americans in general know absolutely nothing about Canadian politics. I would probably bet that half my friends couldn't even tell you Trudeau's title, much less his dad's name or, well, pretty much anything else about Canadian politics. But with the trucker protests, some people are starting to pay attention to our upstairs neighbors, including me. And regardless of your politics and where you stand on vaccinations, you got to admit, forcing a dude to drive a truck, a dude in a cab alone driving down the lonely freeways of Canada 
forcing him to get vaccinated does not make a lot of sense. I don't want to get into the whole vax and anti-vax debate, but I'll tell you, I'm not anti-vax for the record. I'm vaccinated. But like so many of the Canadian protesters, I am anti-mandate, especially for people with jobs like fucking truckers, okay? Again, they sit in a cab alone. And and by the way, 90% of the truckers uh, are vaccinated. So this was a mandate protest, not a vaccine protest. I digress. Here's what I'm leading up to. In case you didn't see it, Trudeau invoked what's called the Emergencies Act last week. Um, and I read in one place that he was the first prime minister to ever do so. I read in another place that his father, Pierre, was the last PM to do it. Either way, he declared a state of emergency, which gave the Canadian government more power to disband the protests. So here's why I'm talking about this. In the wake of that declaration, Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland in a press conference said this, the names of both individuals and entities, as well as crypto wallets have been shared by the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, with financial institutions and accounts have been frozen and more accounts will be frozen. So you've probably heard uh, that they, someone set up a GoFundMe account to raise money and support the truckers. And that brought in like eight or 10 million bucks. Then ostensibly under the pressure from the Canadian government, GoFundMe canceled the project. And at first they were supposedly going to just give the money to charities of their choice. But then they said they'd be giving the money back to the protesters or the donors. Okay, so let's talk about why this is so frightening. Let me fill in first, let me fill in some details from a fortune.com article about how this went down. So this article said, undeterred by the loss of millions, protest organizers simply switched fundraising tactics. Shortly after GoFundMe shut down the group's main account, four protest supporters calling themselves Honk Honk Hodl launched a new funding page on a crypto fundraising site called Tallycoin. Uh, within days, Hong Kong Coddle account, which some say has ties to alt-right groups, of course, raised over $500,000 in Bitcoin. But even cryptocurrency, hyped for its ability to evade censorship and capital freezes, wasn't safe from Canada's courts. The article continues, early last week, Canada's federal police ordered all crypto exchanges regulated by the financial transactions and Reports Analysis Center of Canada, um, and that's most of the crypto exchanges, federal police ordered them to halt transactions with 34 crypto wallets associated with protesters and uh, funds of $900,000. Then, last Friday, a group of Ottawa residents set a new precedent in Canadian law and won a class action lawsuit to invoke the Mariva injunction and freeze 146 cryptocurrency wallets associated with the protesters. Canadian courts have never issued a Mariva injunction, which freezes a defendant's assets against cryptocurrency before. If you haven't listened to my last episode, we talked about this a little bit during my interview with Zach Morrow, and for the most part, used correctly with privacy in mind, you could insulate your Bitcoin transactions from this kind of government overreach. But if you just send your funds from your Coinbase account, the government can easily figure out who you are, 
by basically issuing some kind of an injunction like this and freeze your accounts. So what does this mean? Well, I'm not a privacy expert or a crypto expert for that matter. So don't take my word on this, but there are private wallets out there and other cool little tools like transaction mixers, which can help you make your transactions anonymous. I found an article with a little info about a specific wallet called Nunchuck at techstartups.com. And here's some of what it covered. It starts with one of the compelling arguments in support of Bitcoin is its anonymity. But that was put to the test this week after Canadian authorities sanctioned 34 crypto wallets tied to Trucker's Freedom Convoy. On Thursday, the Ontario Provincial Police and RCMP ordered all regulated financial firms to stop facilitating any transactions from 34 crypto wallets tied to funding trucker-led protests in the country. Then the situation escalated yesterday when Ontario Superior Court of Justice asked self-custody crypto wallet provider Nunchuck to freeze and disclose all information about assets involved in the anti-mandate Freedom Convoy 2022 movement. Nunchuck is a Bitcoin wallet that allows you to manage your Bitcoins securely from multiple devices. Okay, so Nunchuck develops a what's called a multi-sig Bitcoin wallet. Multi-sig stands for multiple signature, which means your Bitcoin requires two signatures before it can be spent. The, uh, the idea is that most wallets and exchanges have a single point of failure, meaning there's only one key needed to unlock the coins. Uh, anyway, Google multi-sig if you're into it, but that's the basic idea. The two signatures are required in order to spend. So now since Nunchuck provides this wallet technology, the Canadian authorities went directly to them and told them not to facilitate uh, transactions to or from those 34 protest-related wallets. Nunchuck then put out a message on Twitter sharing the court's request for the information. And it said this, quote, Yesterday, the Ontario Superior Court of Justice sent us a Mariva injunction ordering us to freeze and disclose information about the assets involved in hashtag Freedom Convoy 2022 movement. Here is our official response, they tweeted. Okay, here goes. Dear Ontario Superior Court of Justice, Nunchuck is a self-custodial, collaborative, multi-sig Bitcoin wallet. We are a software provider, not a custodial financial intermediary. Our software is free to use. It allows people to eliminate single points of failure and store Bitcoin in the safest way possible while preserving privacy. We do not hold any keys. Therefore, we cannot freeze our users' assets. We cannot prevent them from being moved. We do not have knowledge of the existence, nature, value, and location of our users' assets. This is by design. Please look up how self-custody and private keys work. When the Canadian dollar becomes worthless, we will be here to serve you too. So, how great is that? So, long story short... Your government, regardless of where you live, can swoop in and freeze your bank accounts, okay? Ostensibly, they can tell Visa not to allow you to make purchases. They can go to Coinbase and freeze your account. So having Bitcoin is not sovereign money if it's stored where your government can freeze it. So what opinions do you hold that your current government considers thought crimes? At what point are your political views going to become dangerous to your financial situation? So... 
If you're interested in crypto privacy, uh, let me know and I'll do a deep dive on how you can get your coins out of exchanges so that you can protect your privacy and sovereignty. Uh, you can email me at Matt at Rogue Retirement Lounge and let me know and ask questions if you have them. If nobody's interested, I'll just leave the topic alone and it's all good, but it's definitely worth thinking about and learning about. Okay. So now that Canada has proven how easy it is to freeze your money if you're engaging in wrong behavior, I want to introduce you to central bank digital currencies or CBDCs to give you an introduction as to why you ain't seen nothing yet. So you might have heard rumblings about CBDCs in the last couple of years. If you listen to the podcast I listen to, this the information may be a review, but stay with me because I think you're going to learn a thing or two. So CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, are essentially, if you break it down, money as software or programmable money. Uh, here's some more information that I found uh, from a website called OMFIF. Official Monetary and Financial Institutions Forum. Sounds really exciting, doesn't it? This On this site, it said, according to the Bank for International Settlements, or the BIS, over 60% of central banks are experimenting with central bank digital currency technology. CBDCs are close to being widely introduced and many complex matters have been discussed in financial circles. These include developing secure infrastructure, questions around governance, such as how to balance anonymity with transparency, and mitigating adverse economic impacts. As public digital currencies rapidly transform from theory to reality, there is one important feature that needs to be examined, programmability. When talking about programmability, it is crucial to note the distinction between programmable money and programmable payments. The two terms are often used interchangeably, but there is a difference. Programmable money is designed with built-in rules that constrain the user. These rules could mean that the money expires after a fixed date or its use is restricted to a certain set of goods. This would affect digital currency acceptance and has obvious legal implications. So, Money expiring after a fixed date, not terribly scary. Spend it or lose it. Money restricted to a certain set of goods, medium scary. What? California won't let the bear buy beef more than once a month? Yes, this can be programmed into money. Now, what if we're a cashless society and you're paid in the United States CBDC, and if you support prohibited organizations like the Freedom Truckers, your payments will automatically be blocked or worse, confiscated. Now, what about when we have social scores like China does? You know, there's talk about that digital yuan, which actually is now released in 12 cities in China and about how that could be programmed. So it ties into the Chinese social credit scores and spends accordingly, uh, which is frightening. Alex Gladstein, who's the chief strategy officer at Human Rights Foundation, said this, quote, the end of cash and the insta analysis of financial transactions enable surveillance, state control, and eventually social engineering on a scale never thought possible, end quote. He has described China's social credit system in conjunction with the digital yuan as paving the way toward quote, financial omniscience. He also said, when the government can take financial privileges away for posting the wrong word on social media, saying the wrong thing in a call to your parents, or sending the wrong photo to relatives, individuals self-censor 
and exercise extreme caution. In this way, control over money can create a social chilling effect. So think about uh, the YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter accounts that have been shut down because people posted, quote unquote, misinformation about COVID and information that uh, a lot of times ended up being true. You know, think if you stated a wrong opinion and the government decided you weren't able to spend your social security income until a full investigation had been completed. This may be starting to sound like tinfoil hat, chemtrails, QAnon bullshit, but but before you call me completely crazy, I want to take you inside a blockchain smart contract to show you how easily the U.S. government could program its money to do any of these things. For my example, I'm going to use some NFTs that I bought. And why? Well, NFTs are built on blockchain technology that includes what are called smart contracts, which are basically this programmable software rules underlying the asset. So I put a couple NFTs up for sale and I looked at the metadata that shows up and I want to share this with you. I'll put some screenshots at rogueretirementlounge.com slash 64. So if you want to actually see the screenshots, you can look at them. But here's the basic, what they call message that I get when I'm listing an NFT for sale. Oh, and in, in this case, uh, I don't want to confuse matters here, but the NFT is actually a domain name of all things. But in it, again, in its most basic terms, an NFT is just an asset on a blockchain like a token or CBDC that can have underlying programming done to it, which can't be changed. It just does what it's told. So I set this NFT for sale and the first line of the item on this little contract that I'm virtually signing establishes who I, the seller, am. The tag is, quote, maker, and it's got my Ethereum wallet address on it. Next, below that, it's got the address of the exchange that it's sitting on. And then after that, it's got basically a blank wallet address for the, quote, taker, who is going to be the recipient when someone buys this thing. So you've got three parties highlighted so far, the seller, me, the buyer who's yet to be determined, and the exchange that it's being sold on. So in the case of a CBDC, you could have a dollar, and, which would basically be custodied by either the U.S. Treasury or the central bank. Then you'd have the blank address, which would be filled in once you spent that dollar. Then, and now this is the power of the blockchain. Once that transaction is made and validated, say you buy a $1 cup of coffee at a local coffee shop. Once that tra transaction is validated and settled on the blockchain, which is basically a digital ledger, that transaction lives forever. The address that that dollar came from, me, and the address that that dollar went to, which is the coffee shop. And so that dollar can continue changing hands for the next hundred years, but the purchases that are made with it are going to live on the blockchain forever. I hope that makes sense. I'm going to get back to the other details in this smart contract, but just think about that. Let's say if you wanted to give a dollar to a person or a charity, or, or say some homeless guy at a stoplight looks sad and hungry, and you want to give him a buck. So you'll flag him over to your car. He'll hold up his QR code on his phone and that it's gonna that QR code will represent his digital wallet. You'll pull out your phone and scan the code and you'll send him a buck. Okay, there you've done your good deed of the day. But then what happens when your homeless friend buys some meth later that day, goes into a psychotic rage and kills a woman on the subway? Okay, I'm actually being serious about this. Nobody's talking about this stuff, and I'm only starting to consider all these possible outcomes just because I'm looking at the details of this NFT smart contract. So this guy kills a woman on the subway, 
what's the first thing the cops are going to look at? Well, it'll be standard operating procedure to look at the blockchain and find out who his friends are, who he bought the meth from, where else he's been spending his money, and where he got the money that he used to buy the meth. And that person is you. So then the family of the dead girl gets that information and they sue your ass. So now that may be kind of an extreme example, but the point is every single cent that you spend will be recorded on the blockchain and will live there for all time. So, you know, and right now people are going back 10 years or more and digging through other people's Twitter accounts and podcast episodes to find dirt on people, whether it's politicians or celebrities or whoever. What happens when your wallet address gets revealed and people go back and look at your last 10 years of spending? It, it's going to be possible. Anyway, uh, enough scary conspiracy bullshit for now. Next up, let's go back to my little smart contract. The next item is the first fee item, which is called the maker relay fee. That's all one word. And the number is 250. And that 250 is 250 basis points or two and a half percent. So if somebody buys this NFT from me, 2.5% of the proceeds of that transaction are going to automatically go to, in this case, the exchange that is holding it. And that exchange, the recipient's wallet address is noted a few lines later. Again, this is software. So if I'm selling the this item for a thousand bucks, the $25 will be automatically deducted and sent immediately to the wallet address of the fee recipient. More on this in a bit, but next, there are a couple more fee lines here in the message. There's the taker relay fee, maker protocol fee, and taker protocol fee. Now, in, in the case of this contract, all of these are zero. So as long as this item is sold on, a sp on this specific exchange, the fee will only be 2.5%. But there are four total lines of fees that could potentially be built in, sending fees to multiple different addresses. So let's go back to the CBDC model. If the government can build in these fees, or what some people might call taxes, right there in the code, think about how that might simplify a national sales tax, or like they have in Europe, a VAT or value-added tax. Think about how much tax revenue is lost because your spending isn't tracked. Every time you buy from a private party, say you buy a desk that you find on Craigslist or a lawnmower, you name it, your state government is missing out on sales tax. And when you hire the neighborhood kid to mow your lawn, the federal government is missing out on income tax. So what if all that could be just built right into the transaction by using programmable money or software-based currency in the form of a CBDC? Oh, and another thing at the end of this, the message on my little smart contract is date stamps. Uh, and we mentioned that before. There's a time of listing of the asset and the time of expiration. Easy code to write. And again, when the government feels the velocity of money isn't quite where they need it to be, or that the population is saving too much and not spending enough, all they have to do is issue this month's social security payments or EBT cards with an expiration date two weeks from now. It's simple, really. And apparently, SNAP and EBT benefits already expire after a year, so this isn't a big jump. Okay, so if you want to see those little notes that are on my smart contract, again, I'll put screenshots on the show notes page at roguretirementlounge.com slash 64. 
I think it'll help you visualize what I'm talking about here. Um, because seeing this really helped me personally to kind of understand how this might work. And like I said, I've been reading about CBDCs for a year or so, and the, the gravity of this concept didn't really sink in until I actually saw the lines in these NFT smart contracts. So I hope this was helpful. I hope it was understandable. If you have questions, feel free to send me an email. Uh, my email address is always in the show notes. And if you're at all concerned about this insanity, well, it's time to consider buying Bitcoin. Not investment advice here, but it's time to get yourself just familiarized with the mechanics of buying crypto. You know, and Bitcoin is the only cryptocurrency that's decentralized. It's the only one. Yeah, there are quote unquote privacy coins out there like Monero, but Bitcoin is the only option out there that isn't controlled by a company or a DAO or a person or a group of people. Bitcoin is sovereign money. And the easiest way to get Bitcoin is to just go through an exchange like a BlockFi. And yes, I realized that if say you were to send Bitcoin to the Canadian truckers directly from your BlockFi account, that transaction is easily traceable back to you. But the thing is, you can pull your money off the exchange when the time comes that you want more privacy or if you want to use your Bitcoin without being traced. Um, for me right now, I do have some Bitcoin on exchanges. I've got some on a hardware wallet. I've got software wallets and I've got um, some on my own uh, Bitcoin lightning node. For me, it just makes me feel better to have little piles in a bunch of different places rather than a big pile in one place. Anyway, if you go to roguereretirementlounge.com slash crypto, that'll take you to BlockFi where you'll get some special offers, including free crypto for getting signed up and funded. Once again, that's roguereretirementlounge.com slash crypto. And by doing that, you'll be supporting the show. So if you got any value out of today's information, open up a BlockFi account and support the show. I'll appreciate it more than I can tell you. And it'll help me to continue to not have ads on this podcast. Uh, one last thing, as long as I'm groveling for your support, if you did get any um, value out of this episode, will you do me a favor and share it with a couple friends? Pretty much every podcast player has a share button. It's the little square with an arrow pointing upward coming out of it. Share this episode with a friend or better yet, share it on social media. If you find the whole CBDC thing frightening like I do, Help me share this episode with some friends and so they can learn about this. Um, and if you do it, I'll love you forever. Anyway, that's it for today. Keep your eyes open, protect your wealth, and don't let the bastards grind you down. Nothing in this podcast is meant to be financial, legal, or tax advice. Though there's some kick-ass information here, it's for informational purposes only. Take control of your retirement planning, but get professional counsel if you need tax, legal, or financial advice. For more content like this, join my mailing list at rogueretirementlounge.com. And if you have questions about retirement investing, entrepreneurship, business, or anything else, my email address is matt at rogueretirementlounge.com.